Before we get started with everything, I wanted to make sure that you're not missing out on all of the dastardly delights that we have to offer. Scary Stories Told in the Dark is but one of the many shows you could be listening to. Be sure to tune in Monday evenings as well to catch the latest episodes of the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. Be sure also not to miss Horror Hill, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, or Fear from the Heartland. You can find all of these on YouTube and the podcast platform of your choice, or you can get ad-free versions by subscribing at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights website. Thank you again, dear listener, for staying as spooky as you do. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 12. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing the conclusion of two tales to terrify you, courtesy of author M. Grant Kellermeyer. Tonight, we'll hear stories of a job gone horribly right and of vengeful vortexes. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the second part of one spine-tingling story. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the tear, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. Show is about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, 
You can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When last we stood on the doorstep of a mildly dilapidated homestead, we saw our friend Holler trying his best to prep the place for sale. But as we shall see, it's easy to become enraptured by a place. Yes, Heller may just be finding himself falling for the work he's been doing, but by doing so, he may have accepted a few other contingencies of owning the property such as taking everything that goes with it. Without further ado, I present to you part two of I Come to the Garden Alone. Wednesday, August 28th. Morning. He didn't tell Grace about these experiences. In fact, he easily explained them away with three or four simple theories. Although the translucent blister that he found on his right forefinger in the morning continued to trouble him. This episode, notwithstanding, renovations continued without incident or delay. Floorboards were cleaned and new carpet laid down. The damaged walls were patched and repainted. Cosmetic damage to the exterior was mended. The only thing that truly troubled him at the moment was his expanding appetite. Before he'd come home word that he still tried to avoid using. He'd vaped more than he ate, with a light snack for breakfast, a modest snack for lunch, and a large snack for supper. But ever since he woke up in Alexandria that first morning, he invariably ate heavy meals three times a day. And since he was too impatient to cook his own meals, he soon developed first-name acquaintances with the delivery drivers from Rachel's, Dairy Queen, Pizza King, B&K, McDonald's, and the Iron Skillet. He didn't like to put it into words, but in a phrase, he was always famished. Desperate to eat and desperate to be satisfied. His hygiene had slipped some, too, although his look has always been clean and boyish with each passing day. He grew more bloated and unkempt. Five weeks flew by effortlessly and he had become intoxicated with the pleasures of solitude that his hiatus from work afforded him. No commitments, no responsibilities, no one to answer to or appease. It was, with a sly secret of energy, that he rose each morning, delighted to be comfortably alone, ordered a hefty steaming breakfast from Rachel's, and reclined quietly in the house's only easy chair, savoring his third cup of coffee until Demian's characteristic knock roused him from his reverie. He saturated himself in stillness. Here, everything was unobstructed by the complaints of students or the requests of colleagues. He hadn't heard from his literary agent in two full weeks, 
after he had shouted her down during their last call, demanding that she respect his vacation time, and was shocked at how wondrous it was not to be needed. He'd even asked Demian not to show up until ten o'clock. First, this surprised his mentor. It would mean that work would take longer and that the cost would be higher. But he assured the old man that his royalty income was more than enough to cover the extra expense of a few additional weeks. And as to the time, he was increasingly convinced that he needed to reassess his career goals, at least for this year. He'd been rushing through life trying to avoid something. Something he couldn't quite name, vague and shapeless as smoke. But whatever it was, he'd been wrong about coming back home. Whatever he'd been afraid of didn't live here at all. It lived elsewhere, and for the moment, perhaps, it didn't seem to live at all. Up till this point in his life, he'd been drowning himself in work, running away from complicated things that couldn't be tidily catalogued and locked away between the covers of one of his books. Now, if he could drown in anything, it would be this ocean of peace and solitude. Here, there was no running, no escaping, no evading. Just the creamy consistency of a day spent in whatever fashion he chose. He leaned back in the easy chair and stared at the iron stove across from him and the mantelpiece above it, which his grandparents had once overpopulated with family photos, cheap mementos, and tacky keepsakes. Now it was bare and dry and dustless. It was perfect. In the blushing glow of dawn, he relished the first sip of his third coffee and stroked the young beard sprouting along his jaw. Some slight movement on the other side of the window caught his attention. Whatever it was had been leaping jerkily on the border of the wood. By the time he made his way to the window, it was gone, but his eyes were now drawn to the way that the rising sun had glazed the trees in living gold. They waved invitingly to him from across the side yard, and as he sipped the coffee, he made the decision to finish mowing the path to the campsite, a task from that first night which he had inexplicably put off completing for five weeks. He threw back the last of the coffee, mounted the cub cadet, and aimed it at the gleaming wall of leaves. This time, he felt none of the earlier resistance. Blades slashed effortlessly through the grass, and he rumbled toward the trail, crunching over downed limbs, which were chewed up by the mower's teeth and blown out in a spray of splinters. It only took a moment for him to hew his way through the yard before he crossed into the yawning mouth, where he was swallowed up in the sepia dusk of the wood. The path was cleaner than he expected. Although it bristled with weeds and saplings, they were stunted by the darkness, easily rolled over the few branches on the ground and ducked under the fallen trees leaning across the path. The path was wavy, snaking between large trees, and he followed each well-known curve without making a single misstep, rolling up and down the swells of land. With each yard gained, he felt years melting away from his shoulders. The deep, dark, brown dusk was peppered with red flakes of sunlight, lending a subtle definition to the trees and briars on either side of him. He sensed the shape of the land, but it was too dark yet to see anything clearly. He 
was surprised at how much denser the canopy had grown in six years, though perhaps it wasn't just the foliage that made it seem so dark. As clear as the path below was for him, he was amazed by how often, almost constantly, branches brushed against his arms and hair, like reaching, beckoning fingertips. They pulled and plucked at him, and while they were hardly as vicious as the brambles on that first night, they were no less insistent, almost as if they were trying to arrest his attention, prods hoping to wake an exhausted man who had overslept. His thoughts reluctantly turned to Grace, as they might a procrastinated car repair. He knew that she was tired of their casual routine and was eager to move in together, maybe even get married one day. He mulled the idea of bringing her here. It was a strange, unexpected idea, and it immediately tasted sour to him, like a careless gulp of spoiled milk. But which part repelled him? He was surprised that it wasn't the idea of having a future in this place where he'd never in all his life imagined his future. It was the idea of sharing it. This, somehow, was the point of friction. In fact, he realized that he had never really hated the homestead at all. Perhaps he even loved it, especially the lonesome woods. While his family was still alive, he'd associated the place with their backward lifestyle and smothering codependence. While they were in the house, he'd felt the grim, tired ghosts of three previous generations sleeping in its bedrooms and lazing on its porch. But now he felt nothing. Almost nothing. As he buzzed his way down the trail, strange feelings took shape in his heart. He found himself hoping that sickness or a car accident would prevent Demian from coming today. And as the darkness deepened around him, he even smiled at the idea of never speaking to or seeing Grace again. Guiltless thrill to be so free, so utterly alone. As he rounded the curve that led into the campsite clearing, the groping branches became more insistent and furious. The clearing ahead was marbled by rose-colored light, and as he rode out of the bend, the flushed glow clearly silhouetted something that filled the path ahead of him, and before he knew it, he was crashing into the embrace of an enormous fallen beech. Its gnarled limbs swept around him, and its dead leaves tangled in his hair and clothes, rattling victoriously as he tried to twist himself free. Wrenching back and forth and swinging his hands, he finally freed himself, backing away from the great black carcass and flipping on the headlights to better see what he was facing. In the ghostly electric glow, he saw that the tree completely blocked the way to the campsite, it was at least 60 feet long, and that its splintered branches radiated all around it like rolls of barbed wire. The delicious allure of what lay on the other side beckoned him, but he was too stunned to keep exploring, and the sight of the many jagged branches jutting out like spikes of an abatis frightened him. There was no room to turn around, so he would keep it in reverse and slowly back his way out slung his arm around the seat and turned to look over his shoulder. Not two feet from his nose was a human chest, and just above it he found himself looking up into a man's bearded face 
with his features blocked out by shadow. He tried to prevent a gasp from bursting from his lungs, but evidently he failed because Demian reached out an assuring hand and squeezed his arm. Peace there, old boy. I meant no harm. I just came out to find you. We heard the more out here. Pablo's under the porch working on the tunnels. I just wanted to let you know that we're here. He looked closely at Demian. His face was still obscured in the shadow, but an errant patch of light fell across his bearded jaw. For some reason, he was eager to continue this discussion in the open morning air, and he said so. They'd need an axe to free the mower up to turn around, so they left it in that place, and walked back toward the distant, shining pyramid of light, which now represented the way out of the wood. I wanted to ask you something said as they worked their way up a slope. When we were talking earlier, the first day you came, you mentioned something to me. You said something about my readership rewarding me, that it didn't surprise you. What do you mean by that? In the brown light, he saw Demian's face crease. I did say that, yes. You provide a service and you provide it well. And what service is that? provide answers and hope and a matrix of understanding the universe. I debunk delusions. I deconstruct the psychology of extremism. I don't provide answers and certainly don't provide hope. I want people to think for themselves. My readers think for themselves. And I don't provide some sort of cosmic code. I do quite the opposite. I want people to accept the fact that life has no other meaning than the meaning you invest in it. There's no other future or state of being out there for us, other than the future we design for ourselves and the state of being in which we've always experienced it. There's nothing mystical out there watching over my readers. They only need love from the most important person in their lives, themselves. Unbridled self-love and unconditional self-acceptance. That's the only gospel I'm preaching. I don't sell them anything. I pried them away from the salesmen and charlatans, the holy rollers and terrorists. What does any of that have to do with providing answers or hope or a cosmic vision? Demian looked ahead toward the widening yellow wedge. His face was now freckled with the light dripping through the canopy. It's still an answer, and oblivion is a kind of hope, a precious hope to many. Meaninglessness can be reassuring. In some ways, a meaningless life that is only as significant as you choose it to be is far less frightening than a meaningless one wasted away or misused. Psychology itself is devoted to exploring individual consciousness and its reactions to the microcosmos within us. Our anxieties and aspirations all have an existential terminus in infinity. Who am I? Hence, am I destined? And what am I worth? Significant questions even for devout materialists. In many ways, you serve as a priest of a very real and pious faith. A faith in the sacraments of self-definition and self-rule. A faith in the infallibility of human perception an observation. This troubled him, and he quietly thought back to the smell of kerosene 
and the blister on his finger. He glanced backward in spite of himself and was relieved to see everything behind him swallowed up in the dark brown twilight. Ultimately, Demian continued, what would you say is the service you provide? He frowned at this and looked coolly at the ground ahead of him. I teach my readers to choose reality over delusion. Then the question, Demian said softly, that you must ask yourself, if you truly want to be at peace with yourself, is what is reality and what is delusion? Without a thought, he fired back. Reality is what can be measured and touched and sensed. Measured and touched and sensed with what? With intellect and reason. How do you know what you're measuring? You see it. You see it with your eyes. You feel it with your flesh. That's reality. That's truth. Suddenly, he felt a dull pain in his right forefinger. While making an exasperated gesture, he brushed the sight with a blister still tender, though now scarred over, against the bark of an ash tree. Hounding blood drained from his ears, and he immediately felt small and dizzy. The scar pulsed authoritatively. He shrunk into himself like a desperate man caught in an extravagant lie. You'll have to excuse my passion. I take your point, I think. This has actually been a sensitive topic for me recently. Can, can I ask you something? He asked calmly. Something in your professional capacity. Demian looked over with a crooked brow and nodded. Of course. I've been having dreams. Dreams since I was five. Of this place. And of something that lives here. It worries me sometimes. I suppose, he said slowly, that if you view me as a priest and my readers as members of a faith in, I don't know, rationality, I might term it faith in the comforting ability of science to measure and limit the number of possibilities of an inherently chaotic existence. But continue. Fair enough. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. But if you view me as a priest to a faith, even a faith grounded in material truth could have demons that come with it. And I, I don't know what it is, but I think I have one of these demons in my dreams. Or maybe my dreams are the demons themselves, but they disrupt my peace of mind, and yet I don't mind being here. I'm not afraid of it here. But nonetheless, 
Tell me about these dreams. He stared ahead. The sky could be seen through the triangular aperture. It was deepening from blush to a ripe blue. When I was five, I dreamed that a man, a thing, came from the attic door while I was sleeping. It was a nude man. I couldn't see it. I didn't want to see it. It slid under the covers and I felt it. Cold skin, hideously thin, emaciated. It had a beard. Its teeth were clenched. Its eyes were wide open and didn't blink. In the dream, I couldn't and wouldn't turn on the light, but I slept out of bed and ran down the stairs. My family's all around me. My parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, sleeping on mats and in chairs and on blow-up mattresses. It's just as if it was when we would get together for Christmas. I can even see the lights outside. My grandfather would always surround the house with a string of luminaria made out of old milk jugs and Christmas lights. Anyway, the dream ends with the thing coming down the stairs close behind me. I run for the door because I know that I have to make it to the woods. The center of the woods, far from everyone else. And it's the only safe place for and today, for the second time, I feel like someone, something, is trying to keep me out. I've had this dream, I would say, significant points in my life. Puberty, leaving for college, getting accepted into grad school. My grandmother's death. It's always the same. Every detail since I was five. I see. Demian said thoughtfully, but now there's been a sequel, I suppose. He looked surprised, but nodded consentingly. Yes. Yes, there has. I... I'm outside now. The air is chilly, but not cold. And there are leaves under my feet. This is the point where the dream usually ends. And I take off toward the woods. Somehow, I now know that there's someone waiting for me in the clearing the campsite, and I know that they're there to protect me. I can hear him from behind, and he's gaining. The moon is full and rising above the woods. It's honey-colored and warm, and I want to run toward it. As I lunge for the entryway, the moon is so strangely bright that I can see the moonbeams illuminating the clearing ahead of me like a great spotlight. I keep running down the trail. My feet are bare, and by now they're bleeding. I don't care. I keep running and go faster. Branches cut me. I don't care. I keep running and running. There's something in the road as I get closer to the campsite, and suddenly I don't hear the steps behind me. Suddenly, something is coming towards me, running in my direction from up ahead, cutting me off from the safety of the clearing. I can see the campsite now. Completely aglow in the orange moonlight. But before I get there, he is there. He has me. He drags me to the ground. All the light goes out. They stepped out of the woods as he said those final words, and the mid-morning sun warmed their faces. He could see Demian clearly now. His eyes burned thoughtfully. What caused this dream? What was this event? That's part of what's worrying me. At the time, I didn't know what caused it. 
Every other time I've had these dreams, there was some obvious conscious change. Moves, puberty, career changes. But this, I didn't know it at the time. It was when my mom died, but before I got the call. So I didn't know about it yet. But I still had the dream. And it was her death that made me come home. That's the only reason why I came back. It's as though something is being planned, arranged, something for me, something that I, I guess I have a sort of feeling of what it is, but exactly what, I don't know. Or I, but he trailed off. Demian didn't like to hear this and made no attempt to disguise his discomfort. I'm going to think about this today. I'll let you know what I come up with before we leave. They walked up to the house with the sun pouring over them and greeted Pablo as he quietly looked past them, scanning the woods with vigilant eyes. When they got to the house, he left the old man with Pablo and went upstairs to sand the new drywall in his old room. They'd removed the lattices around the crawl space, and although it was still drenched in shadow, the ambient light on the grass and bushes illuminated it just enough so that the holes were visible from the driveway where Pablo was standing beside a cement mixer, pondering the tunnels. It reminded him of something an insect would nibble through a piece of rotten apple. He could almost picture a gigantic buzzing wasp dragging itself out of one of those burrows. What concerned him most of all, however, were the marks in the clay around them, the spatulate impressions of human fingers that lined each opening, as if it had been dug out by hand. He knew that the burrows had been empty in the morning. There was never its nest during the day. But he shuddered to think of what their host would do and where it would go once its nest was flooded. Would it not become quite angry? Pablo glanced over at the woods, whose canopy was swaying in the playful wind. He saw nothing watching him from the shadowy trunks below. That didn't mean that it wasn't there. He'd seen things like this before. When he was a boy in San Miguel Tolajeo, once at the Calajón del Acocate, and again at the ill-fated visit to the Isla de la Munarquez. An experience that he had never shared, not even with his wife. His Peruvian mother had told him of El Pistaco, loathsome, leprous ghoul, who kills out of a ravenous thirst for human fat, and his Mexican grandmother had taught him about El Negual, a jealous soul-sharer who dwells in the hearts of men, shape-shifting in the night to allay their thirst. Whether the host was one of these things, or something unknown to human wisdom, it wasn't a right thing that he had made these holes. For a moment he stood up and rubbed his arms in spite of the August heat, steaming around him. He was cold and his skin prickled. He had a job to do, though. He unfolded the steel ramp and rested its spout on the edge of the nearest hole. Slowly, he inclined the mixer's bowl and watched the cement spill down the ramp and drain into the darkness below. The day raced on. The activity around the house continued. Demian called in two apprentices to help him drywall the main floor, while his former student occupied himself with sanding and painting the drywall upstairs, and Pablo continued to mix and pour cement into the tunnels below, 
the crawl space. With each additional drum of chunky gray slime, you could feel the eyes of something, something out there, beyond his sight, locking more intently on him, watching with seething outrage. All told, he found six individual burrows in the ground, each of which seemed to communicate to a central hub or hive, the dimensions of which he estimated to be roughly six feet long, four feet wide, and two feet deep, simply based on the spacing of the holes and the amount of cement he used. As he studied the marks and pattern of the tunnels, he came to the conclusion that they must have been made out of boredom more than necessity, a means of occupying time or constructing a sense of structure. There was no other reason for six tunnels to lead to the same place when the area they covered was so small. Whatever had made this nest was restless. The only thing more dangerous than a restless Nagual, if such it was, was a vengeful Nagual. He was finishing off the sixth hole as the day came to a close. The doors were closed and the windows were just barely ajar to let the cool evening air slip in. The apprentices had packed up and left, and Dimian had gone on a walk with Mr. Holler at the far side of the house where the grapevine, the wild grapevines grew, in the shade of a pear tree. Pablo focused on his work, but kept an eye on his two friends. He couldn't hear their words, but the stabbing tones of a disagreement came to him from the other side of the yard. Demian was gesturing to the house, to the upstairs, then to the porch, then made a sweeping motion to the woods. His face was serious. Now he held his hands out in a kind of supplication. He turned and looked at the rusted silver truck and then back at Mr. Holler, who glanced once at the truck and then immediately back to his house. His head shook forcefully while his lips moved rapidly. Demian reached out to grab his protege's forearm, but the latter stepped backward. Demian nodded graciously. He lifted a hand to his heart and gingerly gestured to the truck one last time. The younger man didn't return his look, and his pinched eyes seemed both angry and frightened. But he nodded weakly before turning away, apparently to walk the grounds. Suddenly, Pablo glanced back at the house. Something was making a panicked commotion on the far side of the wraparound porch. A frantic clattering on the floor followed by a heavy thump and a metallic crash from inside the living room. He ran over to where the sound had been coming. One of the living room windows, which had been cracked a few inches for ventilation, was now pushed flush to the top, along with the screen. A hefty toolbox had been placed under the window, but now it was toppled with its contents spilled over the floor. Then he heard something moving away from him. With a shiver, he slowly looked up. On the far side of the dining room, Half hidden by the hefty organ, he watched the door to the stairwell being pulled shut. When Pablo finished cleaning the cement mixer, Demian came up to him and asked if they could start gathering the last of the tools around the house. They would need to take everything with them. After a very difficult conversation, he'd made the decision that their contracting firm was not the ideal fit for what Mr. Haller required. He would pay their contract out that Friday. After today, they would not be returning to the Victorian farmhouse on West County Road 700 North. Pablo was relieved and energetically collected the last of their tools, 
But as they walked away from the house, as the violet twilight pulled over it, he felt a twinge of guilt. It has no place to rest its bones any longer. He said to himself, Now it is with him in the house. Friday, September 13th. Late afternoon. It had been now eight weeks. He canceled his fall lineup and committed himself, finishing the house in time to teach a few half-semester classes at night in October. It would be done by October. Grace was calling him every day now, but they were talking for shorter periods. He always had something to wrap up before they could get too far into the conversation. He knew she was worried. She kept asking him about future things that he seemed to have effortlessly forgotten, like a child's pledge made to his best friend in kindergarten. To never kiss girls were to grow up to become basketball stars. But these were recent, sensible goals. Moving to the West Coast together, engagement rings, house sizes. Should the houses have nurseries? He was confused by the words and ideas, like a stoic monk being asked about the ethics driving a hybrid car or composting your own waste to save water. What did any of it matter in the grand scheme of things? He once asked her when she was coming home, but now she was confused. He rephrased the question into a comment. I just mean that when you get home, we can talk more about this, but I'm really bogged down here. And she became oddly quiet. An exasperated silence burned between them. Maybe, she said softly, they should consider eloping next year instead of doing a large formal ceremony three years from now as planned. Maybe, if it made him more comfortable, they could indefinitely shelve the kid's question. Although he noted that she had once promised him that she would never bring this topic up until after they were married, by which time he hoped marriage satisfied her increasingly unfeministic appetite for these bourgeois archetypes. But he skirted agreeing to any of these terms, hemming and hawing, until eventually the concern left her voice. After an oddly short goodbye with a strangely gentle voice, she finally let him hang up. It was a cool September afternoon, and he decided to do some exterior work while the air was so delicious. An hour later, he was standing on a ladder, spreading paint over each knob and into every chink in the faded gingerbread trim, when he noticed that his paint tray was running low. Without a thought or even a change in the expression on his face, he handed it behind him, reaching it out to be refilled. A few seconds passed before he wondered what he was expecting to happen. At first, something imperceptibly murmured in his mind, He's been standing there watching me this whole time. Paint can is right there at his feet. But it was a loose floating thought that quietly blew out of his consciousness, unexamined. He must have been thinking about Demian. A foolish lapse of focus, nothing more. There was no one else with him, to be sure. He wrenched his head back and forth, side to side, rolling it on the stump of his neck as if trying to pour dust from his ears. Then, without further thought, he descended to the paint can, refilled his tray, and obediently returned once again to the place he'd been before. 
Sunday, September 29th. Early afternoon. It was the last week of September and the last week that he could possibly justify staying before he admitted the truth to himself. In fact, the renovation was so wrapped up that his days almost exclusively consisted of enjoying extravagant meals, vegetating on the porch, and sleeping in. The walls were repaired, the floors recarpeted, the roof patched, the fences mended, the porch painted, the crawl space filled in, the windows updated, the walls painted, the cabinets replaced, and nearly 200 perennials were successfully planted around the property. The chicken coop and outbuildings were cleaned up and given fresh coats of stain. The orchard trees were pruned, and his grandmother's vegetable garden had been tilled up for next year's planting. It was all ready for the new resident. One day, the week before, Demian had rolled into his driveway in his rusted silver truck. He didn't have Pablo with him. Pablo had apparently asked him to make the visit, but refused to come along. In fact, Pablo had specifically mentioned that he would never again set foot on the property while Mr. Holler was living there. There is something in there with him, he said. While he did not share this detail, Demian pointed out his own personal concerns, both as a psychologist and a friend, and expressed a sincere wish that his former student would come back with him to a home-cooked meal and a comfortable guest room with freshly laundered bedding and a no fewer than three large bookshelves stacked with excellent reading. Mrs. Demian, he added, was expressly happy to let him stay there for at least a week or two before he returned to his lovely fiancée in Nashville and agreed to let the two men have the run of the place if they ever needed to have a private conversation. Even the offer of a home-cooked meal disgusted he realized that what he savored about his full breakfasts, heavy lunches, and multi-course dinners was the time that he was permitted to enjoy it in solitude. In Nashville, he was always racing back and forth between commitments. He used to think that he had been running away from his family's regressive quaintness and intellectual laziness. But that wasn't it at all. He'd found the same irritants in his career. Obligations, networking, and sincere gatherings filled with inane banter. It was just easier to tolerate. No, what he had truly been running from, and what he had always been invading, was the idiocy and tedium of other people's expectations. He could only be free if he was by himself. Even Demian was an imposition on his comfort. Looking back at his career, he now had the epiphany that he'd always been preaching about this. The importance of self-love and of shaking away society's puritanical expectations. The best love in the world, the purest, most euphoric love he could imagine, came from within. And within himself, he thought, smiling contentedly, there were no surprises, no disappointments, no demons. Demian left after arguing for over an hour, promising to try again in a few days. But he hoped that the old man had quietly taken the hint, nor had spoken to his lovely fiancée in Nashville, a phrase that had given him chills since their last conversation. There had only been a handful of texts, brief, terse, and ultimate, 
and he knew that there would be no more to follow. It was the beginning of a fresh, pure start for him. As he sat there, mulling these developments, he walked past a woman at the kitchen sink and looked uneasily out into the dining room. He thought he heard something coming slamming on the windows, banging and shouting, as if someone was fighting for his attention. It was especially worrisome because this was the second time he'd heard things like that. The day before, he kept hearing poundings at the front door, knocks and stomps along with something like voices calling his name. The woman at the sink didn't turn around, so he knew he must be imagining the sounds. Still, it was concerning. After walking around the house and checking to see from where the noise might be coming, he finally felt them stop and a mellow silence rolled in all over things. This had been a tense summer, he admitted to himself, and he knew that his nerves were jittery from the changes that he had been making in his life. But he needed to wrap everything up and prepare for whatever the next step might be for his grandparents' house. He would make the decision tonight. He really only had one last take before he could say that the renovations were complete. He had to fix the latch on the attic door to keep it from slipping open with every temperature change or house shift. The door had always had a tendency to open by itself, and the basic solution was to tighten the hinges or shim out the latch to help keep it shut. It was a chore that he had been avoiding. He knew the basic psychological premise behind his aversion, but it was embarrassing to admit that he had consciously put this off as if the consummate skeptic was actually afraid of the boogeyman. Trudging up to the attic at the end of a lovely fall day, he pulled out a small tool bag and examined the door frame and the iron fittings. It appeared fast enough. He touched the handle to test it and was surprised to find it wet, greasy with something oddly sour smelling. He touched it again after rubbing his hand on his jeans. The smell lingered in his nostrils like spoiled food. The knob turned at his testing it, and the door came open after a little wrestling. He looked inside the attic, a lifeless cave of a place that breathed a damp, husky draft. He frowned. Something was odd about this. The attic was always drafty, but as they looked out his bedroom window, he could see that the reddening leaves were absolutely still. There wasn't a whisper of wind, certainly not one strong enough to generate such a strong, steady pulse of nasty air. He looked back into the attic. Dark. It was so dark. His hand moved forward slowly to reach for the light switch. But it stopped. Something stopped it. Something inside of him stopped it from reaching into the darkness to turn on the light. Don't do it. Don't turn on the light, for heaven's sake. And he didn't. He wasn't sure why, but he didn't. He closed the door gingerly and tried the latch. Yes, yes. Here was the trouble. Too loose. Surely the latch needed tightening. He tested it again. Yes. Even though it still took some effort to open the door, he could see how the latch was somehow loose. He oiled it, tightened the screws, adjusted the catch, and analyzed it several times. Finally, he closed it for good. The iron tongue dropped home into the catch with a louder, more confident sound. A thick raspy clack. 
Monday, September 30th. Twilight approaching. The following evening, the sky rippled with cool flame. Serene crests of silver and gold cloud scudded across a rosy sky that darkened into a bruised purple the higher it went. There was no wind, but the atmosphere felt electric with activity, and he sensed it creeping around him from all sides, although he set his face and denied it. He was alone here and at peace with his choices. He'd chosen to be freed from the puritanism of his family and the materialism of his society, free to define himself by his own self-love and the worshipful indulgence of his appetites and senses. He owed his soul to no god, his labor to no man, and his heart to no woman. It was his life to do with as he chose, and he chose to keep it to himself without regret or reservation. He sat on the porch drinking his third sweet tea after a heavy meal of roasted chicken and mashed potatoes delivered from the iron skillet, and he watched the sky blaze and pearl without interest or emotion. It wasn't what was outside that interested him, but what was inside. The internal world, he had decided, was just as rich and worthy a landscape to settle in as any on earth or in the heavens. He thought back to his childhood and the nights when his family would fill the porch with their bodies and banter, and how deprived he felt of his precious self-expression. Now he was here by himself. His parents and grandparents were in their graves. His cousins were either dead or never to return. His uncle on his deathbed, if he hadn't died already. So many of them were dead in a variety of stages and ways. But he was here, the last man standing. He thought back to the story of his mother's cousin, who died with his pants around his ankles and a cow halter twisted around his neck. The perfect metaphor for their hopeless, delusional worldview. A humiliating act of voluntary self-destruction in pursuit of a sacred cow. He pictured his dead relative now. A boy he'd never met who was completely defined to him by the single most foolish asinine thing he could ever be fool enough to do. And now they're all in the same place that he was, cold and alone in the soulless, sightless infinity of the earth. Dead. And here he was, alive. He'd done everything his way in life, even rejecting Demian's advice and standing up for his right to self-satisfy. And who cared for the old man anyway? Demian was far closer than he was to the dying of the light. Soon he, too, would be with him, cold and alone, in the soundless, sightless infinity of the earth. He smiled to think about it, and his smile was not particularly pleasant to look at. He could, if he chose, to stand up with a stomp and beginning knock over the pots and kicking in the railings, ranting at the top of his lungs about the childish idiocy of faith, the small-mindedness of tradition, the cold indifferences of death. How it had swept away and muted his grandparents' organ-fueled hymns forever. Buried his mother's grief like a stone tossed into the sea, shattered his family with as little difficulty as a man might pulverize a china doll with a mallet. He could do any of this now. He could run through the room screaming profanities, 
tear his grandparents' bedroom to pieces in a drunken fury, or urinate on the kitchen table, and hurl each dish and bowl to splinters on the floor. It sounded strangely delightful to him right now, and I grinned to think on it, but he did none of this. He sat and drank his tea and planned his midnight snack of bananas, peanut butter, and a tumbler of whole milk. Overheard, the flaming heavens deepened and darkened and died away until it was all draped in a heavy blue pall of night. Copper-colored moon rose imperceptibly over the house like a watchful, cyclopean eye. Monday, September 30th. Nightfall. The night was unusually warm for the last day of September, and as he made his rounds before going to bed, he left one window open in each room before checking the doors and turning out all of the lights, except for the nightlight in the dining room, whose pale glow cast enormous shadows from the grim old organ in the antique china cupboard. He heard the house settling around him and thought back to his first morning there. How effortlessly he relaxed once the illusion was broken. He would still have left that exact moment if he had known that nine weeks later he would be quitting his job, breaking up with Grace and moving into this nasty old place. Was that what he was doing? He hadn't yet said that out loud to himself. It sounded extreme and unexpected, but by this point he supposed that it was the truth. He paid for the house and still received over $2,800 a month, in royalty checks from his books, website, and videos, and that was more than enough to feed him and pay the utilities. Moving into the old house, he said out loud, Is it really what I'm doing? He still had time to put it up for sale. He could return to Vanderbilt for the spring semester. This could all be just a hiatus. He had suddenly lost his mother on the heels of completing two consecutive breakneck book tours across 17 states. Anyone would understand his need for some time away from his home in Nashville. But was he ever going to return there, or was this his new home now? He subdued his racing mind for a moment and listened. There was nothing but cool silence, serene and filled with peace. He thought he understood why this was happening, and he decided to commit to it here and now, there was no new resident to prepare the house for. He was the new resident, and he said as much, boldly and out loud. Climbing the stairs to his bed, he felt the change in temperature with each step, warmer by ten degrees, probably. He opened his bedroom window, pulled the drapes back to let the fall breeze in. It was fresh and soothing, spiced with the amber aroma of fallen leaves and the distant scent of someone burning leaves. Looking into the distance, he wondered which farmhouse it was coming from. It was such a warm night. He scanned the violet landscape, but he could only see the light of two or three windows in the distance. They all seemed weak and sleepy, and one of them blinked out while he was looking at it. In the west, he could hear the interstates rushing his. The vague red glow of its light barely seemed to cut into the deepening dark drifting in all around him, like a great silent oil spill being pulled ashore by an unstoppable tide. He took his shirt and shorts off and lay in bed. 
The sounds of the interstate grew softer as the traffic died away with the hours. The smell of burning leaves faded as the denizens of the unknown farmhouse went to bed. A ponderous silence rolled in over the house like a bank of black thunderheads forever blotting out the sun from the sky. Tuesday, October 1st. Midnight. His dreams were vague and disturbing that night. He felt himself running through a wilderness, seeking relief from some unseen enemy, but always hearing his racing footsteps just as he paused to catch his breath. Then he must rise back up and find new shelter. There was nothing to see, just the sounds and smells and impressions of a great primordial forest where he was trapped with his pursuer. It was at night, and he felt very sure where not to go, but not at all sure of where he should go. His feet ached and bled, for they were bare, and his lungs burned with each ragged inhalation. The air here was not cool or fresh-tasting. It was muggy with a stagnant flavor, like the basement in an old house whose walls were webbed with furry black growths. Although he could not see, he knew that if he were to look up, he would not see stars or the moon above, just the black and silent ceiling of impenetrable infinity. Now he seemed to know that he was approaching the cliff's edge and that his pursuer was hard behind. What was to be done? He was turning to face and fight him off, but in the action of turning he began to lose his balance. And now here was the thing, impossible to see in the dark but panting frantically with a flurry of slapping footballs. It sprang on top of him, and now they were falling together, and its bony arms were wrapped tightly around him, while its bearded face pressed lovingly into his own. It crashed into the ground with a bone-splitting crack. His eyes flew open, and he stared at the ceiling. A few blotches of brassy moonlight dappled the wall across from him, but the room was otherwise consumed in shadow, and he could barely make out which direction he was facing. Not just a dream, he thought to himself. Maybe that's the end of it. It's all over. That's how it ends. It's all been me, about me confronting reality and admitting to myself that I need to make this change. I'm going through with it. That's what I needed to do to kill him off. Now I can go back to sleep, and tomorrow will be the very first day of this new life of mine. A life of total integrity internal integrity, unconditional self-love. Now I can live my life exactly the way I want. There's no one I'm accountable to, no one I'm responsible to. I'm completely alone. His train of thought was cut off by a sound, a thick, raspy clack. It came from the left side of the room, from the wall he shared with the attic. He could still see nothing in the darkness, but there was the low creak of the attic door gradually opening, as if to avoid notice by someone who didn't realize that he was already awake. It was a step on the floor. His throat clenched as he listened for the next step, hoping that it would just cross in front of him, as one would if they were heading toward the door. If the intruder went downstairs, he'd be able to escape through the window without a confrontation. He would make his way down the side of the roof, hang from the gutter over the flower bed on the west. 
and his thoughts were decapitated by the sound of a second step, and a third, gingerly making their way, not towards the door, but the bed where he was trying so hard to breathe quietly. Now his breaths came out in spluttering wheezes of terror as the thing gently sat down beside him, with painstaking care, as if trying to avoid disturbing a sleeping lover. Now it was pulling the covers back and easing snugly into bed beside him. There was no question of whether he was awake or not now. It must know, because his breaths were now coming out in desperate sobs, and it was with a shiver of absolute disgust that he felt a bony hand slip over his chest and grip his arm cozily. It inched closer to him, burying its face into the angle of his left shoulder. A wild, greasy beard scratched into his throat, and a row of emaciated ribs were now pressing against his elbow. It now sat up as if trying to get a better look at him. The room was filled with a pungent, sour stench. The vulgar tang of human skin encrusted in sweat and filth and urine. And as he heard his visitor begin to pant giddily, his stomach convulsed from the rancid odor of a mouth filled with rotting teeth and rancid gums. It watched him for a moment in a cluster of soiled fingers, like the legs of a tarantula, gently brushed against his bare, flabby stomach. He clenched his teeth to restrain a scream as the hand felt its way up his chest, along his throat, over his own beard, where it lingered lovingly on his face, curiously fingering the terrified man's set teeth and poking at his fixed, unblinking eye. He told himself... Some half-starved vagrant. This was who had clearly found his way into his house. He doesn't seem violent. I can speak carefully to him. I can tell him that I'm turning on the light and that we can get him some food and then call the police to find him a safer place to live. I won't frighten him. I'll reason with him. I'll explain what I'm doing. He'll appreciate the food and the empathy. I'm a psychologist, after all. I'll use my training to keep him calm. It's all a misunderstanding, very natural. There are homeless people in the country, too. Maybe he hitchhiked an I-69 and was dropped off at the truck stop, wandered down the road looking for a friendly face. He was confused in the mind, so when he saw that the windows were open, he climbed in and came up here. I've been leaving them open all week. Probably he's only been here for a day, maybe two. Now I just need to calm him down need to turn on the light. His fingers shook violently as he started to reach over to the nightstand, and his dry lips were going to form the words, If you don't mind, sir, I'm just going to reach over here and turn on this light so that we can see each other. But something dormant in his mind rebelled against his reason, exploding in his heads with the words, No, 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 whatever you do, don't turn on the light. His hand dropped, and he began to sob as the stranger settled down and began snuggling against him. He knew that it was not a vagrant, but he wouldn't. He couldn't turn on the light. He dared not look it in its face. No matter what it did, he could not do that. He would die first. What could be done now? His senses returned to him, and he remembered the dream. He had to make it to the campsite was the only safe place, away from this hideous house with its ghoulish memories 
and it was with a surprising burst of energy that he spontaneously sprung out of bed with his nighttime visitor and plunged toward the landing. He crashed through the door and seemed not to be surprised by what he saw. The figures of his dead parents sleeping quietly in a bed that had not been in the landing for 25 years. He thundered down the stairs as if they had always been there, nonplussed by their sudden appearance. Nor was he surprised by the strong, resinous odor of lamp oil wafting up from the dining room, nor by the croaking strains of the organ as it brayed out his mother's favorite hymn. I stayed in the garden with him. Through the night all round me is falling, but he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling. He rumbled down the stairs and rounded the corner, where his eyes were stung by the flickering blaze of two hurricane lamps, burning just as they do so often in the dining room. His grandmother was sitting calmly at the organ, ringing the tune from its tired lungs. His grandfather was swaying in time to it in a rocking chair overlooking long-gone bird feeders in the side yard, just as he had in life. The grandson paid them no attention, stumbling frantically into the living room as he heard its naked feet smacking down the stairs. All around him were dozens of sleeping bodies, reclined in easy chairs, curled under the blankets on the floor, stretched out on sofa beds, bunks, cots, and four-posters. Something had drastically changed about the room. The dimensions were impossible, and he couldn't tell if there were any walls at all beyond the front door. Certainly, he knew, the old living room would never have been able to accommodate so many people. Some, his first and second cousins, great-aunts and uncles, he recognized either from faces or forms, but many were strangers to him. Had he not been so panicked, though, he may have recognized them from old photographs. He certainly recognized at least one from a yellowed 1977 obituary, a teenage boy with a crew cut and a clenched expression, as though he were troubled by nightmares. His throat was embossed all around by a nauseating purple welt. Before he could look away, the boy's eyes flew open, and he flashed the living man a cryptic grin, which he refused to decode. Enough of this house of the dead, he thought, as he gained the front door and leapt onto the porch. His eyes stung from the light all around him. His grandfather's luminarias were strung up in two phalanxes, encircling the house and outlining the driveway like an airstrip. Red, green, blue, and gold bulbs burned softly inside old milk jugs. He dreaded encountering his pursuer in all of this light and rushed for the deep, protective darkness of the woods. There it would be safe. There he would not see or be seen. Now every experience began to roll in disconnected flashes through his brain like like the flickering visions of a kaleidoscope. Time rushed backwards and forwards. He smelled things from twenty years ago, vividly saw sights that he could barely remember, felt the warm fur of long-dead pets, and heard the booming laughs of long-dead relatives. They tumbled spontaneously through his mind, bumping up against one another in no certain order, and moving from one to another as if he was randomly flipping through pages of a yellow photo album. But he rejected it all, rebuking it with his whole heart, shaking his head until his senses returned with their grip on reality. And here it finally was, 
the wood towering black against the sky like an iron fortress, or an enormous obsidian tomb. The copper-colored moon shone onto the trees, gilding their canopy with liquid orange. As he plunged into the great shadowy pyramid at the trail's beginning, he took one final glance behind. The house was ablaze with gentle light, ruddy pinks and golds from the windows and the porch lights, while the colorful luminarias burned quietly in their protective ranks. He sensed that all who slept there slept soundly. He did not want to sleep. He would do anything to save himself from that. Before turning back, he caught a glimpse of an emaciated figure silhouetted against the luminaria's rosy glow. It was his pursuer, and he deeply regretted the wasted seconds spent looking back at that wretched old house. Re-energized, he filled his lungs with aromatic fall air and doubled his efforts, pounding down the path with his hands extended, groping his way to the campsite by memory, for here it was truly lightless and overwhelmed by night. His feet were gouged more than once on sticks and rocks, and he realized that leaves were sticking to them because of the blood, but he refused to let up. Now, just ahead of him, he could finally see the copper-colored moonlight breaking through the trunks ahead of him. A few more steps, and he would be at the carcass of the fallen beech tree. He cursed himself for not having brought in chainsaws to have cut it away, but he would make do. He would climb over it and make do. Rounding the curve, he could now hear the crunch of footfalls behind him, but he was gratified by the sight of the moon hanging over a bronze idol over the clearing, and he could make out the familiar trees and rocks that made up his old gateway. There, in the warm sepia tones of the moonlight, he saw the hollow under the arms of a gnarled ash tree where he used to place his tents. And there was the stump where he would shoot cans off with his BB gun. And there was the rock where he would stand on to feel tall and strong like a grown man. And there was the little fort he had made out of fallen branches and old logs Hardly changed in twenty years. It was all there. Here he would find safety. He threw himself onto the beach and groped for places to pull himself up by. Almost immediately he was aware of a strange, dull pain and a coldness that invaded him. But he ignored it, dragging himself up and over. His boxers were snagged as he slid to the ground, and he ripped free of them just in time to hear the crunching sounds pause at the roadblock. How serene was it here? How peaceful? No, the house wasn't the answer. It had been brimming with souls, and he was seeking solitude. The freedom to be and love himself exactly as he was, without agendas or responsibilities or expectations. He thought of the sleeping shades in the house and of his grandmother, still playing that grisly old organ, and his grandfather still watching phantom birds while rocking in a phantom chair. What kind of existence could that be? So repetitive and small. Well, at least they had what they wanted. They were together in that miserable farmhouse, along with who knows how many layers upon layers of tired old ghosts from when it was first built in 1893 to his own poor mother. She would be happy there, he supposed, but he had to leave. Where to now? Nashville was done for. He couldn't bear the thought of seeing Demian. No, he would stay here. Here he was safe. 
Here, he was himself. He looked up at the copper moon and smiled. Then he stopped. There was something standing in the center of the campsite. He hadn't heard it moving, hadn't seen it make its way over the beach. But here it was, calmly and confidently, standing in front of him just a few yards away. His back was to the moon, and he could see the hideous outline of the starved, skeletal figure. Yes, it was a nude man with a beard, gaunt to a repulsive extent, little more than a bony rind covered in filth and mud and waste. His shaggy hair hung over his forehead and from the darkness. He almost thought he could see two points of orange light where the eyes should be. How'd he gotten in? This was the safe spot. This was where the dream had promised that he could be alone for, with himself and... He felt his stomach drop in stunned mortification. He understood it all, or at least as well as his stubborn heart would allow. He squirmed helplessly as his mind raced through the years and began to peel away his own great delusion. How perfect had it been? He was almost proud as he traced it through the years. But now he had no years left. Now he was facing it. While it had been patient, they were both running out of time, and one or the other had to make its move. As the gruesome thing took a weak step forward and reached its hand out in loving anticipation, he didn't need light to know that its putrid mouth was grinning, or to know what kind of a face it had, or whose face it had. The orange light behind it glowed through its hands. They were appallingly wasted away and through the long, jagged nails. It looked weak, it looked famished, and he knew so, so very well that it was powerful hungry. The thing tottered forward limply, but suddenly it leapt forward with surprising agility and power, grappling him in its arms and bringing him down to the damp soil. They were cold and alone in the soundless, sightless infinity of the earth. Tuesday, October 1st. Sunrise. Demian was already blinging himself before he knew what the toll had been on Holler. Whatever they found, it would be too late, but perhaps there was still a chance. They had tried to speak to him three times. On the first day, Pablo had seen him walking around the house, ignoring their knocks on the doors and windows, sometimes speaking and gesturing as if he were in a conversation. They left after trying to get his attention for a half hour. The second day was no less effective. They saw him sitting in the easy chair, nodding and murmuring to something across from them. He certainly didn't look sane. Unwashed, unshaved, and unclothed. Deliriously ambling from room to room, disinterested in, though sometimes apparently aware of, their shouts and pounding. Finally... As the first sunrise of October brushed the cornfields with rosy fire, they stooped to using the spare key to access the house. Downstairs was thick with a greasy blue haze, drifting and sharp with the stench of kerosene oil. Two hurricane lamps sat on the table. Their wicks had burned out. Tendrils of dark smoke still curled from the smoldering nubs like incense wafting in a temple. Both still had oil in their fonts. Demian noticed sheet music opened on the organ. He 
hadn't even been aware that there was any sheet music in the house, and certainly doubted that Heller would have suffered it, a hymnal accompaniment, to be left out. Blankets were strewn all over the living room and the upstairs sitting room. The attic door was wide open. The new resident of the house was nowhere to be found. Demian advised that they search the woods. Having eliminated the obvious places indoors, he said there was no other place he expected to find his missing student, and they headed back down the dark path into the heart of the wood where Holler had spent some of the happiest days of his life, playing by himself. Where they found him is unnecessary to relate. That he was dead is equally obvious. As to the investigation, it was plagued by bizarre details which have become staples of the true crime and paranormal fandoms, of how he apparently speared himself through the bowels, accidentally or otherwise, on a jagged branch while scaling the fallen beach, how some of his blood was found on the tree and some on the ground, though it was hardly enough to explain how the body had been so completely exhausted of blood. Strangest of all, still an unexplained medical curiosity, was the mystery of how a man who, by all accounts, had gained over 50 pounds or more of fat over nine weeks, should lose over 80 pounds in a single night. The body they found was emaciated to the point of starvation, and its white skin hung in loose, stretchy folds, as though the fat had been suddenly sucked away. Epilogue Demian blamed himself for what happened to his former student, and when the house was sold to a young family two years later, he and Pablo visited him on a breezy spring afternoon and spoke quietly with the parents in words that the children couldn't hear or understand making subtle gestures to the porch and the wood and the attic. The wife's face was very serious and pale. She was seen to point directly at the wood and heard to whisper things along the lines of, Yes, very thin. Creeping around back there. Yes, it had a beard. Within two weeks, they rented an excavator, rubbed up the center of the wood and replaced it with a massive fish pond. Two months after the visit, Pablo was driving down Highway 28 on his way to deliver some of his wife's chiltamare to one of the women in his mom's group, who was down with a heavy cold. He turned at the burnt-out house, gaunt and black like a mummy, the setting sun shining redly through the ribs of its shattered walls onto North County Road 500 East. Since the family lived on West 700 North, he didn't mind driving past the old house on a mission of mercy. But it was twilight, so he turned down the road, and when he did so, he increased his speed and kept his eyes forward. Other than a lone amber porch light, the house was dark, no vehicles in the driveway. So he imagined that the family must be out for the evening. As the sun set, Creamy mist steamed from the fields, and the windows of the distant farmhouses began winking on like dormant embers, responding to a gentle breath. He passed the property in safety and felt his throat and nostrils relax. But when he looked into his rearview mirror, he was startled. The whole house was awash with gentle rosy light. It beamed from a phalanx of glowing orbs encircling the home, like watchmen in alternating liveries of 
blue and scarlet, gold and green. He pounded the brakes and looked closer at the mirror. It had been entirely dark just a few seconds ago. But yes, there was a ring of light burning a blush on the walls and casting soft shadows along the porch. He turned around in his seat to look at it directly. No, no, he had he been mistaken? Everything was still and dark and quiet. The sun finally set in front of him, and the house was now folded up in deep purple dusk. He turned back around and gunned the engine. It had all been an illusion. But as he continued down the road, he refused to look into the mirror again until he delivered the food. When he arrived, he made sure that the woman got the first largest serving, spent time talking soccer with her husband, and pretended to be astonished by their daughter's new magic kit. Then he put his truck into gear and continued home to his wife and children by another route and never drove past that house again. I hope you enjoyed the conclusion of I Come to the Garden Alone by M. Grant Kellermeyer, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Kellermeyer. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash K-E-L-L-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. If you've enjoyed how these last two episodes in particular have dug under your skin, please let us know, and occasionally uh, we may bring you more longer-form stories. As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let him know that you heard about him here on this program and that me, Otis Jarry, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure he would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please... Take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, Follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jarry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, 
dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.